0: Today in your outlines, you'll discover that we're going to be talking about constructing relationships. We're in a series of messages about uh, building our lives. We talked about constructing uh, character. We talked about constructing faith. Today we're going to talk about constructing relationships. How many of you are relationship wizards? Okay, we got one. Andy, good. So if if you'd come on up here and teach us how you are so good at that, we would really appreciate it. How many of you know what the foundation of good relationships is? One word, Marty. That's not it. Did you say trust? Did you say trust? Did you say trust? Did you say trust? You say trust? You say trust? You're right, Marty. Okay, trust, trust. Talking to each other. Yeah, have you ever talked to somebody and then not wanted you to talk to them? <laughs> have you talked to them rather sternly at times? You know, it doesn't create trust. I'm talking, but good communication, I think, is really what you're talking about. Good communication is a good thing. But trust, because trust is the foundational building block of relationships. Now, trust creates security and openness in your friends' relationships with you. Security and openness. Remember those two words, because it's vital that we be transparent in our relationships. Um, now, why do we not want to be transparent? You think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did they want to be transparent with God? No, no they wanted to hide because they were ashamed, right? Uh, it says because they were naked, but really what it means is they were, that God could see through them. And he could see the duplicity of what they had done. And so they were ashamed of that. And they said, oh, we have to cover up. And we spent a lot of our lives trying to cover up our inadequacies, our failures and all of that stuff. So we're kind of like the children in the Garden of Eden, uh, sowing fig leaves so that we cover up our inadequacies. But remember, security and openness needs to be the foundational building blocks of your relationship. And it's built on trust. It's built on trust. Now, Trust means that you're faithful, you're dependable, you're reliable, and they can have confidence in you. Okay, Now, there are some descriptors there for trust to be built, because you need to be faithful, dependable, reliable, and have confidence. They need to have confidence in you. Now, did you know that trust varies based on geographic area? I did not know this until I did a little research on this, and I found out that in the United States of America... The deep south and the state of Nevada have very low trust rates. Very low trust. You know who rates the highest in states? Minnesota. Minnesota. Now, who lives in Minnesota? No, Norwegians. Norwegians live in Minnesota. And did you know that in Brazil, only 2% of the population of Brazil trusts other people? 2%. 2%. I mean, think about that. 2% of people trust each other. And uh, the other 98%, got to hold you off at arm's distance. Now, also, 65% of Norwegians trust each other. And you would find them, you know, they have kind of gone to Minnesota and that area up there, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and and they find that, uh, th- that they have higher trust rates. Interesting to me to realize that geographic areas have a kind of a, an influence on that. Now, also, when you find low trust rates, you find a disparity in, in health. People with low trust rates have poorer health overall than people with high trust rates. Now, that kind of makes logical sense when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I want you to take this medication. You say, what will it do to me? Well, here are all the side effects. And, you know, and you, you can you you've seen TV, right? And they list all the side effects, and you scratch your head and you say, "Why would I take that?" Uh, so you, we might not trust it. So people in those low health areas, you know, they have some trust issues with their doctors, and their doctors tell them to take stuff, and they don't take it, so their their health declines. Um, the social services available to the poor in those low trust areas is higher, because. Wages are, well, income is lower. I mean, not wages, but income is lower in low trust areas. And it's remarkable when you see the disparity of health, when you see the disparity of wealth, when you see all the things that, that trust brings to you, you would say, you know, I need to learn how to trust more and I need to learn how to be trustworthy. Now, also it translates, like I said, into poorer health and higher crime. Low trust areas have higher crime. So if you're having a high crime rate in your, in your area where you live, yeah, it might root back to trust. Who knows? Um, also, there's lower achievements on standardized testing of children in schools when it's, low trust, uh, in a, when it's a low trust geographic area. Now, this stuff was remarkable to me because you would think that, you know, how do you measure all that stuff? And we have scientists, social scientists that can measure that and figure it all out. But there are some true benefits of trust. And let me just name a few of those. Um, Have you ever taken action when you didn't have complete information? You know, your your doctor, he says, do this stuff. It'll be good for you. And you you ask the question, why would I want to do that? How should I do that? And so he says, just trust me and do it. It will benefit your health. And many times we will do that. So it helps us, trust helps us to take action when we don't have complete information. Now, for many people, you don't act, they don't act because they don't have complete information. Therefore, trust level is low, and they don't take action on stuff that they need to take action on, and that leads to all kinds of failures in their life. Now, um, here's here's an alarming statistic. Uh, People who trust generally live longer. Okay, people who don't trust... Generally die younger. So if you're old today, way to go, you trust her. Okay? Uh, people who don't trust are lonely, socially isolated, disconnected people. They're usually men. <laughs> I see guys going, mm. and I see women doing this. Okay? Yeah. Okay? Um, let's see. What else can I tell you about that? Um, Trusting marriages and good friends uh, repeatedly show enormous health benefits. There's a, tr- a huge benefit in your health when you're a trusting person. You know, uh, we talked about worry last week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude our message today because I, I need to clear up some stuff about worry. But sometimes when we don't trust, we worry more. Okay, Trust and worry kind of go uh, kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum there. And when we trust, we don't worry as much, and thusly we live longer and more, more healthy lives. Um, let's see. Cost of not trusting. Princeton University did a study. uh, No, I'm sorry. Harvard University did a study back in 1952 through 54. And they interviewed kids and they asked these kids, what kind of relationships do you have uh, with your parents? Now, trusting, warm, close, or not? Okay. Do you have a trusting relationship with your parents, a warm relationship with your parents, close relationship with your parents, or not? Okay, Now, 35 people together and did an interview, and here are the statistics that they found. 91% of those who said they were not close to their mothers had experienced, 91% of of these people who said they were not close to their mothers had serious health issues in midlife, compared to 45% who said that they did have close relationship with their mother. Now, you almost double up your chances of a serious health consequence if you don't have a close relationship with your mom. Now, you guys can verify that for your own sake. Now, for those with father issues, it was an astounding 100% of these people had serious health issues in midlife compared to 47% who said that they were close. Okay, big, huge huge benefits in health. 95% of the of the people interviewed who used few positive words to define their parents had experienced serious medical issues in midlife Okay, compared to 29% who were positive. Now, does it sound like trust would be a good thing? Okay. Now, do you ever trust somebody who's not trustworthy? Yeah, sometimes you do. Sometimes to your own peril. But however, I want us to think about ourselves today, and how can we become people who are trustworthy? And I've got six things here. I think four or five, maybe, uh, maybe five, maybe I'll... Okay. So here we go. How are you going to build a trustworthy life? Number one: sweat the small stuff. Sweat the small stuff. Now you've often heard it said, don't sweat the small stuff, right? Small stuff is inconsequential. It doesn't matter. However, if you read the Bible very carefully, you'll find in Luke 16 verses 10 and 11, it says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And And Jesus goes on to say here, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So how you treat the little things is going to be how you treat the big things. How many times have you spent life saying, you know, when I get to this point in life, I'm going to do whatever it is that I'm going to do in life and be, you know, make my big splash. Well, if you're not making little splashes, you'll probably never make the big splash. So sweat the small stuff. Now, Jesus goes on and says something in verse 11 that I think is very important because most of the time for us, we want to build our security based on what? Now, you're good Christian people, so you're going to say, our relationship with Christ. Now, I'm going to suggest that in our world today, most people will build their trust, will build their their foundation on wealth. Okay, If I have money, I'm going to be taken care of. If I have resources, I can weather the storm. Now, notice what verse 11 teaches us here. So, okay, first of all, let's go back to verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And whoever, and so, I'm sorry. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, if you haven't been trustworthy in the little things when it comes to worldly wealth, what's the conclusion here? Well, who's going to trust you with true riches? I want you to circle those words, true riches, because worldly, worldly wealth is not true riches, He says, that's a precursor to getting the really good stuff in life. Now, what's the really good stuff in life? The things, the blessings that God God wants to bestow upon you. A good family, a good name in 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 the community, a good reputation of people in the church. He wants you to build the really, truly valuable things. But if you can't handle money, you probably won't be able to handle that other stuff as well either. So... There's more important things what Jesus is teaching here. There's more important things than just money. That's the precursor. And if you've been if you've been handling and sweating the small stuff there, then when it comes to the true riches of life Influence, I'm going to say, is one of the greatest blessings of life that you can have. If you have godly influence in the lives of other people, you will be able to impart to them the road, the path by which they need to trod in order to become what God has intended for them to become. So influence is one of the great wealths of the Christian life. And it's more important than money. Now, if you, you know, when you stop and think about influence, you know, that's a great responsibility, isn't it? Having influence, you need to make sure your influence is accurate. You need to make sure that it's helpful. You need to make sure that it's a godly influence. And so, influence could shape shape somebody's life for the better or for the worse. How many of you have seen children grow up in families and homes in which there was comparison done? You're not as good as your sister, you know, you're not as smart as your sibling. You're not as whatever than your other siblings. And great harm can be done there because parents have positions of influence. And so a kid grows up thinking they're worthless. Kids think grows up thinking they're not smart. And so what do they do? They live up to that expectation and they show you, yeah, you're right. You're right. Or there are some exceptions to the case too. And some of them say, well, I think you're wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to excel. Now that happens, but more often than not, when there's negative comparisons made in a child's life, it will harm them more than, more than help them. Now, even when it helps them, it doesn't foster a good relationship between the parent and the child. So therefore, make sure that your influence is used properly because it's better to have influence than having worldly wealth. So sweat the small stuff. If you have a small influence, make sure you manage it well. If you have small resources, financial resources, manage them well. Because if you don't manage the small stuff well, when it comes to the big stuff, you're not going to have it either. Okay? We often think, when I get to the big stuff, that's when I'll get serious about life. No. Your small stuff, your everyday stuff, is what will determine how you handle the big stuff. Number two. Okay? So sweat the small stuff. Number two, tell the truth. That's a simple one. Tell the truth. Now, how many of you have ever lied when it benefited you? Be honest. Okay. I remember when I was in fourth grade, uh, it was around Memorial Day and Indy 500 is on Memorial Day, right? Right, Okay. Okay. I, sometimes I get Memorial Day and Labor Day all confused, and so Memorial Day and, and all the, these kids in my class are talking about, you know, ah, you know, the big race, you know, Indy five hundred. I didn't know Indy five hundred from anything, and so as I listened to my friends talk about the Indy five hundred, I recognize, oh, that's a car race. Okay, I get it, I get it. And so one day I come to school, and i want them to be, you know, I want them to, ha- I want to have some, I don't know, notoriety. So I told them one day in school. They said, yeah, are you getting ready? Are you going to watch the Indy 500, blah, blah. I knew I wasn't going to watch the Indy 500 because the Indy 500 is always on Sunday. And I knew my parents were going to make me be in church. Okay, So I knew that I was going to miss this thing. However, I didn't tell them that. I said, yeah, I'm really going to watch because my dad's a driver in the Indy 500. (laughs) Now, that was tough because now they say, what number is his car? (laughs) I hadn't thought through that far. I thought, oh, no. what?" And so I'm smart, though. And so I just divert to something else. Yeah, he was out at the time trials and blah, 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 blah. Get him distracted. Oh, wow. <gasps> you know, come back to school the next Monday or Tuesday. How'd your dad do? What number was he? Man, I didn't hear any McCamy as a driver. Oh, no. And I tried to be as scarce as I could be. In fact, they could have made a Southwest commercial. You'll want to get away. I wanted to get away in the biggest way. Tell the truth. You know why telling the truth is so much better? You don't have to remember all the lies. You don't have to remember the backstory. You don't have to remember what you told who and when and what. And telling the truth is always the truth. And so you can always default to the truth. In Ephesians 4.15, the 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 writer, Paul, is talking to the Ephesian church and he's talking uh, about how we ought to relate to each other. And he talks about these bad ways to relate to each other. But he says in verse 15, instead, instead of all this other baloney, instead, speak the truth in love. Now, when you tell the truth, do you have to tell all the truth? No. Should you tell the truth, nothing but the truth and all of the truth? What if somebody's a little bit overweight? Is that true? (laughs) No. Marty, that's why you've been married as long as you have. Okay, no. Okay, sometimes things that are true don't need to be said. Okay, you don't have to tell, you should always tell the truth. Okay, you don't have to tell all the truth. Now, when you're being asked about something, don't hide things. Don't be deceitful and be careful there. Don't be deceitful. But you don't have to just blurt out with the truth about everything. You know, a lot of people are very opinionated, aren't they? Oh, I should say, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, we all have opinions, don't we? We're all very opinionated. And we don't have to blurt out all of our opinions about everything, do we? No. So let's learn to speak the truth. And I want you to circle those two words in love. Now, what is speaking the truth in love? What does that entail? Okay, Number one, it's telling the truth, but it's also telling the truth for the benefit of the person hearing it. How many of you love to be right? I love being right. I love being right. In fact, sometimes being right for me is more important than being loving. Have you ever had that situation? Being right is more important than being loving. I'm going to give you an illustration. Last Sunday in church, I was concerned about being right. I was asked a couple of questions at the end of the service and I was more concerned about being right than being loving. I was asked a question um, and, uh, you know, much to my chagrin, uh, the people who ask those questions are not here today. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe there was damage done. But one question was asked and said, you know, I, I what do you call it when you when God supplies for you, but you want just a little bit more. How many of you remember my response? Great. Yeah, I called it greed. I called it greed. Now, is that true? Yeah, okay. But was it harsh? So I ask you guys to forgive me and I'm going to make a phone call to the lady to whom I said that uh, because that was I was more concerned about being right than it was about being loving. Another Another group of people, in fact, several people uh, said, you know, we were talking about worry. And they said, you know, I don't worry about myself. I worry about other people. And I dismissed that a little bit and acted like, well, you, you know, just be content with what God does with other people and show your trust and blah, blah, blah. And I should have been more sensitive. I should have said this. It's okay to be concerned for other people. We want to be concerned for other people, right? We want to be concerned because that leads us to pray for them. And we ask God to intervene. Now, when it gets over to worry is when we start questioning, well, is God really on the ball? Is God really concerned? Is God really, you know, that's when it gets over to worry. I should have explained that a little better. So to you all, I ask you to forgive me for that. Because I was just more concerned about, once again, being right than I was about being loving. So therefore, when you tell the truth, make sure that you're doing it for the benefit of the person who's hearing it. And I make my confessions to you this morning. Now, it says this, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body. Okay? Now, each one of us is a member of the body of Christ, right? We make up the body of Christ. And when we speak the truth in love to each other for the benefit of the person who hears the truth, then we are going to grow in maturity. We will become seasoned veterans, so to speak, and uh, will become the mature body of him who is the head. In other words, Jesus. That is Christ. So therefore we become his body. We become the functioning part of what he does. Okay? In Proverbs 24, 26 it says, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. <laughs> so and, and as Marty has well said, I hope an honest answer doesn't come from another man. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. But really, what the writer here of Proverbs is saying is, is that an honest answer is a very intimate thing. Very intimate thing. When you think about intimate relationships, most of the time we relegate that to sex, right? You know, that's intimacy. No, it's not. Sex does not equal intimacy. Honesty equals intimacy. When I can be, when I can be Bear before you. When I can be honest before you, that is the truest sign of intimacy because it reflects my trust and my and my and my desire to be in relationship with you. So remember, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. It's very intimate. Now, sometimes if you ask a question of somebody and they reveal something about themselves that is very, you know, maybe disclosing, you know, how we treat that you know, is very important because that will indicate the level of future intimacy. If I can trust you with the truth about me, I'm more likely to divulge more truth about me because you accept me as I am. I'm going to suggest that most marital relationships don't have true intimacy in the United States of America today. Most of them do not. We still wear fig leaves because we're afraid that if my partner knew everything there is to know about me, they wouldn't like me. Intimacy says, I trust you with the truth about me. And so I'm going to be completely honest. Tell the truth. Okay. Number three, how do you build trust? Number three, own your failures. How many of you have ever failed? Let's be honest. We have failed. Okay. Own it. Own it. And say, you know what? I choked. I messed up. Be willing to admit when you fail. Now, Our relationship with Christ is much the same way. In order to even enter into relationship with Christ, we have to kind of own our failures there, too, don't we? We have to admit the fact that we are sinners. We have failed in the past. We're not perfect people. And when we come to Christ, we admit that we fail. Um, uh, I kind of got ahead of here. Let's back up just a little bit, because this is a really good passage of Scripture here, Matthew 537. How many of you have ever said, you know, when you're telling somebody something, honest, it's the truth. I have a habit of doing that because sometimes I kind of joke around and stuff. And I want people to know I'm really telling you the truth here. I'm not joking around with this one. And so we have to clarify that. But Jesus says here in Matthew 5:37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Tell the truth or say no. Anything beyond this comes from what? The evil one. Now, when we have to qualify our speech, what we're saying is, you might not be able to, You not, might not have been able to trust me before. Maybe I messed with you. Maybe I joked around with you. Maybe I didn't tell you the full truth. But this time, really honest, I'm telling you the truth. And we have to qualify it. We have to start thinking to ourselves. Hmm. What is our pattern of speech been before that would cause people to wonder if I'm being honest with them now? Okay. Now, own your failures. Let's move on. Own your failures. James five sixteen says this. Therefore. Okay, and our failures often come at the expense of other people, don't they? Have you ever let somebody down? Have you ever failed to keep your word? Yep. Have you ever tried to cover it up with an excuse? Yep. Okay, we do all of those things. Now, here's what James 5.16, and I know you have 4.17 on your outline there, so change that to 5.16. Cindy didn't get it right. Um, <laughs> There's there. Cindy, you are a Cindy advocate. And no, I wasn't being. I made the mistake. I'll own my failure. Thank you for calling me on that. This this job is a brutal job. I want you to know. It says this. Let's get to the scripture and get off of me. Okay. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Confess your sin. Why do you confess your sins to each other? Wouldn't it be easier if we just confessed our sin to God? And let me give you a a little outline here on how to deal with your failures. There's three people or there's three groups that you need to confess your failure to. Okay. Number one, always, always, always confess your sin to God. Okay. Confess your sin to God. That's that's. Because why do we always confess our sin to God? He is the only one who can truly forgive you. Okay, Other people can offer their forgiveness, but it does not absolve you of your guilt. Okay, Now, when we confess our sin to God, he has the ability, the unique ability, to absolve you of your sin. Now, why does he have the unique ability to absolve you? Because he paid the price for your sin. Now, that people pay the price for your sin in different ways, but he pays the ultimate price to justify your sin. Okay, To justify you, rather, not justify your sin, but to justify you. So always, always, always confess your sin to God. Number two, confess it to the people who have been hurt by it. The people who have been affected by your failure need to know that you recognize it and own it. They need to know that. So confess your sin your failures, to the people who are affected by it. People that weren't affected by it, do they need to know about it? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, So I, I would say no. There's a third group of people who need to know about it too. And that is, confess your failures to people who will hold you accountable in the future so that you can overcome your pattern. How many of you have a favorite sin? Wait, let's start over. Everybody raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have a favorite sin? You all do. Okay. We all do. It's the one we commit most easily. Okay. It's the one maybe we commit most frequently. It's our favorite. You know, it's just hard to get away from. And so in order to break that pattern, we need to confess our sin to God. He will absolve us of our guilt. Secondly, we need to confess it to the people who have been affected by it. Maybe our children, maybe our spouse, maybe our, 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 Uh, family, whatever it is, we need to to make sure that we confess that. Then thirdly, we need to confess it to somebody who will help us overcome it through accountability. Okay, We need to have some help. Obviously, we've not been very successful with it on our own. So therefore, let's get some accountability help to help us overcome our failures. Those are the three groups of people uh, and people who need to know about our sinfulness. Okay. Now, when it says here, confess your sins to each other, it doesn't mean everybody. I, I, have you ever been a part of a church where, you know, on some Sundays they just prayed people up in front and they confessed their sin, you know, and the people say, oh, I, we forgive you. Have you ever been a part of anything like that? Yeah, back in the, back in the 70s, that was kind of a popular thing to do. And, uh, you know, and you would sit there, I remember as a kid sitting in a church that did that, and I would go, wow, I never knew that about that guy. You know, and it changed the way I thought about them. And I thought, I wish I hadn't known that, you know, because I wasn't was affected by it. And I'm just going, oh, God, oh, wow, I'm going to steer clear of them. You know, pretty soon I'm afraid of everybody in the church. Uh, so be careful. Not everybody needs to know everything about your sinfulness, but there are, there's God, there's a the people affected by it that need to know about it because they need to know your repentance, and there's people who overcome it that you trust. Okay, you need to have a great full of trust with those people to help you overcome it. Okay. Now, notice there's, a, there's a, uh, a result of confessing your sin to each other. It says this, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Sin causes, causes damage. Okay? We need to be healed from the damage of sin. Now, when you commit sin, what's the damage that that sin causes? It causes separation from God, correct? Okay but not relational separation, just kind of, I'm hiding from God because I'm ashamed of my sin. Kind of like Adam and Eve hiding in the Garden of Eden. Okay, There's that that happens. What else happens? I start believing that I'm nothing but a big fat sinner. Now, you know what the result of that is? Is that I start kind of looking okay at sin. Well, I'm just a human being after all. And aren't human beings supposed to sin? Yeah, it all starts making kind of logical sense to you. And pretty soon, you're not living with your true identity. You're living with your old identity, which was identified with sinfulness. Now, your new identity being in Christ is, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. And I have the ability to overcome all this stuff. And I'm not living like that now because I'm thinking, oh, I'm just nothing but a weak sinner. You know, I'm just a human being. And, you know, human beings sin. And so there, well, it's no big deal. You know, so we start living by the wrong identity. Okay, that's what we need to be healed of, living by the wrong identity. Now, it says in the last sentence here, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Okay, so when you're in the ability to have somebody come to you and confess their sin and say, hey, I've, been, I've affected you by it, or I need you to help me overcome this, your prayer of the righteous person can affect that person greatly. So make sure that it's not just, well, you need to avoid this and you need to quit doing that and you need to blah, blah, blah. Make sure that there's an ample amount of prayer involved in the healing of that thing. In 1 John 1, 9, uh, the apostle John says this. He says, if we confess our sins. Now, notice he says, if, indicating that mm, there might be some situations, some people in which that doesn't happen. Okay? There's some people that might not confess our sin. He says, but if we do, he talks about God now. He says, God is faithful, which means he always does what he's going to do, and just, which means it's the right thing to do. And he says, and he will forgive us our sins. He will forgive us. Now, what does forgiveness include? Okay, Forgiveness includes pardon. You are pardoned. Now, are we no longer guilty from the sin that we did? We really did it, didn't we? So we're guilty of it. However, we're not Charged with the consequence of that guilt. Okay? The consequence would be you have to pay for it. Okay? But Jesus pays for it, so therefore we receive pardon, forgiveness, and pardon. You don't have to suffer the consequence. Now, when we forgive each other, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Now, why don't we forgive each other? Because we want to get even. Don't we? We kind of want to get even. Okay? And so when somebody does something to me, I come back and I I do something to them. But I don't know if it hurts as much for them as it hurt me, so I'm going to do a little more. You know, I'm going to pay back a little extra. I used to tell my kids, you know, when we were wrestling around or whatever, you know, and they would try to hurt me. Sometimes Jared would try to hurt me. I'm sure he was trying to, because uh, it did. And, and I, I would always tell him, I said, remember, I pay back double. So whatever you do to me, I'm going to do double to you. Yeah. You know, when he was little. But then when he got bigger, he says, I think I can hurt you bad enough to where you can't hurt me. And so that, that was a whole different thing. But, but, you know, that's the way we are. When somebody hurts us, we pay them back a little more. And that person says, you know what? That hurt a little more than I think I really hurt them. So I'm going to hurt them back. And we escalate, don't we? We just escalate this thing and we get out of control. Forgiveness says, I no longer have to pay you back. That's what forgiveness says. I don't have to pay you back. I don't have to get even. You're 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 off the hook. You don't have to pay back. I pardon you. Now, a lot of times we have problems forgiving people. Why? Because we think they don't deserve it. Right. They don't deserve it. And uh, who gets eaten up in that process? We do. We get eaten up because we we harbor this thing and we think about it all the time. They did this and oh, man. And you know what they're doing? They never thought about it again but you're getting eaten up by this thing. So therefore be careful about that. Okay. Now back to Jesus. He's faithful. He always does it. He's just, it's the right thing to do. And he'll forgive our sins. He'll pardon us. And notice the last thing here, it says, and purify us from all unrighteousness. Man, I don't know what it's like for you when you confess your sins to God, but I remember the first time as a kid, when I came to Christ and I confessed my sin to him and it was like, I was floating. I was like, floating. And I remember telling my grandfather, I said, man, I just feel like I'm floating because he was integral in my, in my conversion to Christ. And I, I said, I feel like I'm floating. He says, you know why? I said, no, but it's cool. You know, I thought maybe I thought I was on a drug high or something. Uh, but he said that was before drugs. I'm so old. It was before drugs. Uh, but, uh, but he says, this is the first time in your life that you have not been weighed down by that weight of sin. You feel like you're floating. I said, that's exactly how I feel. And that's what being purified from all unrighteousness should do to us. If we don't sense that feeling, then we might not have been, uh, might not have gone through the full process to be fully, fully made righteous. Okay, so make sure that you confess all of your sin. Now, number four, let's look at number four here. Uh, How do you build trust? Number four, don't dismiss others' emotions. I think last Sunday I did that to some people. I dismissed their emotions and, um, and I regret that and I, I apologize for that. In Romans twelve fifteen. what does Paul say we ought to do with people? Number one, rejoice those who rejoice. You ought to be happy with people who are happy. Have you ever seen somebody, they get a promotion at work and they're excited and you didn't get the promotion? You're not as excited about their promotion as they are, are you? Okay? And you say, mm, yeah, well, congratulations. There was a better candidate, but you know, they must have overlooked me. And you kind of grouse about it a little bit. But truly, when we identify with somebody else's emotions, we rejoice with them. They're happy about it. Let's be happy with them. Okay? Be happy with them. Now, most of the time, we're just too focused on ourselves and maybe on what we've lost rather than being able to focus on somebody else's life and focus on what they have gained. Always, 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 when you're in relationship with somebody, be focused on what your friend, what your partner, what your marital spouse, whatever it is, be focused on what they have gained. And you'll find it a lot easier to rejoice. And that's awesome. They get a new car, that's awesome. And all the time, and it's easy to rejoice with somebody who gets a new car because you can always think in the back of your head, I don't have to pay for it. Awesome. I'm glad you got a new car. You know, it's easier to do. Okay. And then they drop the bombshell on you and say, yeah, we paid cash. Oh. You know, and then, but always, always be focused. Be focused on what the other person has gained. Okay. They've gained that. Now it also says here, the opposite end of the spectrum, mourn with those people who mourn. Now we're not as good at this, I don't think. Because what do we want to do for people who are mourning? We want to make them feel good, don't we? We want to make them feel better. We want to make, you know, and so we say, oh, you'll get over it. You know, I remember when, when my daughter, Jenny, she lost a baby and, uh, and had to give birth to it. And, and it was just, a, for me, the worst day of my life. Um, and there were people who came up to her afterwards and want, loved her so much that they wanted her to feel better. And they would say, oh, you can have another baby. You know, oh, you'll get over it. You know, it won't hurt so bad. And many of these people had not experienced anything like this at all, but you know, they wanted her to feel better. And I appreciated them wanting that. However, it really denigrated her emotions. You know, what she came away with is, man, I'm I'm grieving, I'm mourning over this thing, and I shouldn't be. Maybe I'm not a good Christian. Maybe I don't trust God enough. And it was a hard thing, and I had to explain to her, I said, Jenny, sometimes people are just don't know what to say. They want you, they love you so much that they want you to feel better, but they just don't know what to say because this is not a common experience. This is not something everybody has experienced and it's difficult. So have a little grace and mercy for them because they just don't know quite what to do. And when she got to that, she could deal with that. But we need to be careful of dismissing people's emotions uh, because we want them to feel better. Sometimes it's better to mourn with them and say, That's got to be, that's the most terrific loss you could have ever experienced. You know, I, I, man, I am so sorry for that. And I want to cry with you. Jenny said the best people for her were those people who cried with her. Never said anything. Just cried with her. So uh, don't dismiss other people's emotions. Number five. Number five. Here, and we're getting close to the end. Okay. Show other people respect. Show other people respect. When are you less likely to show people respect? respect Okay, when they don't respect you or when they disagree with your point of view. Remember, it's more important sometimes, we think, to be right than it is to be loving. It's more important to be right. So when people disagree with my point of view, what I want to do is convince them that I'm right. And sometimes I disrespect them and their point of view. Sometimes what's better for us when we have a differing point of view is to ask them, why do you believe that? What brought you to that conclusion? Okay, And find out something about how they got to that point. 1 Peter two seventeen it says this, show proper respect for everyone. And then he names three classes of people here to whom he wants to address this specifically. Number one, love the family of believers. Respect is shown in love. Now what is love? Love is wanting God's best for someone else And if I have the ability, I want to provide that for you. That's love. I want God's best for you, and I want to be able to provide it if I possibly can. Okay, I want to support you in the pursuit of it. I want to encourage you. I want to maybe even provide stuff for you uh, if it's God's best for you. So that's how you show respect for the body of Christ. He says there's a second category of people here, uh, or a second person. He says, fear God. That's how you show respect for God. You fear Him. Now, how many of you think that fear does not include actually being afraid? Fear of God ought to include a little bit of fear, okay? That's why the word fear is used. Now, not in the sense of being afraid of an unjust God, but being afraid of a just God uh, whom I am on the opposite side of, okay? If I'm on the opposite side of a very just God living an unjust life, I ought to be a little bit concerned about the consequences of that, correct? And that's what fear of God is all about. Having an awesome reverential respect for God and the power that he holds to make things right. The power he holds to bring justice to our world. And so there's an actual amount of fear there. That's how you show respect for God. And then he says, there's a third person here, and you show respect for the emperor by giving him honor. Honor the emperor. Now, if you do a little research on emperor here, you'll find that this guy is the guy who has uh, unequivocated power over his subjects. Now, we don't have that today with the, with the president of the United States, not the emperor that we're talking about here. Okay? Uh, but we ought to honor him. We ought to honor the president of the United States because he does have power over us. Uh, I'm reading in a really interesting book, and I'm going to read a couple more chapters before I recommend it to you. Uh, But but it's a very interesting book about our nation's history and how the abuse of power has become something that has kind of generationally happened and gotten greater and greater and greater uh, among elected officials of our land. So uh, be aware of that. But nonetheless, we give honor to those people who have authority over us. Now, I want you to write this down on your outline. And this is the important thing for today. Keep the big picture in mind. Keep the big picture in mind. This guy went down to the airport to pick up his friend and he had a brand new Ford pickup truck. And you know how guys are about pickup trucks. You know, it was just, oh man, you know, that's life. You know, that's, that's the sign of manhood. And he picked up his friend, and his friend said, Oh, you got a new truck? Oh, man, it smells like a new truck. And, and they went home, and they were just, Yeah, mur, 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 mur. and they got home. And uh, his friend went about his business, and, and the guy that owned the truck went about his. And, and it came time to take his friend to the airport, and he went and met him. And the friend gets in the, the truck, and he says, What happened to your truck? There's a big dent in the passenger side door. He goes, Oh, you'll never believe what happened. He says, My neighbor's kid has one of those basketball hoops, you know, that sits on a stand, and the wind blew it over right into my truck. And so I contacted him and said, Hey, you know, your kid's basketball hoop, you know, uh, how do you want to handle it? And my neighbor said, I don't. I don't want to handle it. I don't think it's our responsibility. It happened on your property. I mean, after all, I don't. So the guy, being a Christian, he said, I just don't know what to do about this. So his wife and he prayed and prayed and prayed. And, uh, and so the guy said, you know, the, his passengers, what 'What'd you finally decide? Are you going to sue him? Are you going to take him to court? And here's what he said. He replied, after a lot of soul searching and discussion with my wife about hiring an attorney, it came down to this. I can either be in the right or I can be in a relationship with my neighbor. Since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than this truck, I decided that I'd rather be in a relationship than be right. Remember, keep the big picture in mind when it comes down to relationships. It's better to be in a relationship with somebody that's going to go on forever than it is for you to be right and get your truck fixed. I remember when I was first married, my mom, uh, she loves me to death and still does. And in spite of everything I've done, uh, but she loves me to death and I was her baby boy and she, she just loved being a mom of, of me. And I got married. That kind of disrupted things. And I remember we went to visit my sister my mom and my dad were there, Cindy and I, and, and my sister and brother-in-law. And uh, we had gone from my house in Anaheim down to my sister's place in Hammett and my parents were from back in the Midwest and so they were staying with us. And so on our way back, uh, there had been a little tiff about Cindy and and my mom. And uh, my mom got snippy with Cindy and said some things she shouldn't have said. And so I got my mom aside and I said, Mom, you can never do that again. You cannot do that again because I'm going to be married to Cindy for the rest of my life. You and dad are going back to Missouri at the end of the week. No brainer for me. I'm going to be married to Cindy for the rest of my life. So make sure that your investments in relationship are for long-term good, not short-term happiness. Okay. Make sure that you know. Uh, make sure you count the cost. Make sure you keep the big picture in mind.